Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith, and today, food glorious food. We're going in search of a meal that not only tastes great, but one that also is healthy. And it's sustainable. And I'm going to have a go at cooking it. In 2023, what the world eats is at the top of the priority list for most public health organisations. And that's because half the population are overweight or obese. And we're frequently malnourished, but we're not short of calories. And that's what's causing the problem. What we're eating, though, is often bad for our health and also bad for the planet's health. It's mass-produced, it's ultra-processed, and it's often travelled huge distances with a corresponding carbon footprint to boot to get to our dinner plates. The problem is that stuff that does tick the right boxes in terms of calories, nutrients and sustainable production often has a rep for being boring, pretentious and or tasteless. And many people also worry that it is hard to make nutritious, green and exciting food. So this week, I've set myself a challenge to try and prepare a meal which fulfills all of the criteria that we've outlined without compromising on what will hopefully be a delicious dining experience. You'll see later how I got on. But let's start there. What makes food taste good? Well, with us now is Charles Spence, who's an experimental psychologist, and there's a clue, from the University of Oxford. So what are the basic tastes, Charles, that we have evolved to recognise and prioritise in what we put in our mouths? So the exact number of basic tastes that we can pick up in the tongue and in the oral cavity isn't quite known, but uh, there are four or five at least that everyone agrees on, and those would be sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and kind of the protonaceous taste of umami is a mysterious fifth taste from the East. And those are designed to enable us to decide which foods are safe to eat that may be nutritious and which ones to avoid because they may be poisonous. And we're all born liking sweet tasting foods because the calories they may contain. All newborns of humans, rats and chimpanzees are born sticking their tongue out and down, trying to eject anything that tastes bitter. So that's a fairly good sign, of course, not perfect, that what we put in our mouth might be poisonous. Salty, we, we, we sort of like more or less depending on our need state to get minerals. And then sourness and acidity, uh, people aren't quite sure what that's doing. So if I wanted to design a food 
or cook something which is going to really tantalise my taste buds and attract me for all the right reasons, what sorts of flavours or tastes should I go for? How, how should I try to make that food appealing so I want to eat it? So while in a way taste buds are kind of the ultimate arbiter of what it is safe, perhaps not safe to eat, I think most of what we think of as taste or as flavour of food really comes from our nose, from the sort of orthonasal sniffing when we sniff like the pisto kid, the aromas of foods out there cooking on the stove or in the store or elsewhere. And then the retronasal sense of smell whenever we chew and swallow food or drink, it's kind of a pulse of volatile rich pushed out of the back of the nose. And that is really where most of the pleasure of food comes from. Because that's where things like the nutty, the meaty, the floral, the herbal, the fruity, all those things that we might enjoy and savour in food are really being delivered by the nose, not by the tongue or the mouth. It only gives us sweet, bitter, salty, sour, umami. So I'd be really trying to think of a food that has a really appealing aroma. What about the visual as well? Uh, I think that's absolutely key too. It's been long said that we eat first with our eyes, and all of the research shows that our brains you know, very rapidly will process a scene, figure out if there's anything worth eating out there. And in particular, if it's highly energy dense, our brains will attend to follow, keep track of that in case we can eat it a little bit later. Mm-mm. Charles Spence there. More from Charles later on in the programme. So armed with what I'm looking for in a tasty type of food, something that I will want to eat, that's one of my boxes ticked. That's what I have to achieve. And with those insights in mind, I better embark on my challenge. Remember, I was looking for a healthy but also planet-friendly and delicious meal. But not being a cook, I did need a bit of help. But luckily, I happen to know a former MasterChef finalist. So I went to see him. So here I am on Mill Road in Cambridge, and I'm outside Van der Lyle. This is the restaurant of Alex Rushman, my go-to person whenever we have a food-related quandary or challenge. So, let's go in and see if he can help us. Hello, Alex. Hello. Good to see you. It's been a while, actually. Yeah, it has. I it's think, been a really um, long time. Nice 2019, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. A lot's changed. I think yeah, we've exactly. both aged probably about 15 years. And you still have the most amazing physique of a marathon runner. You're running marathons, <laughs> I gather. Uh, I'm doing some long-distance running. I need to keep fit, you know, being surrounded by food and drink all the time. I need to do something to maintain my health. Well, I did hear them say, never trust a skinny chef. But uh, maybe you're going to be the exception. I'm hoping I can prove the adage wrong. I really do, yeah. Now, you are my go-to person whenever we have a food-related challenge. And I've been set a challenge, which I'm hoping you can help me with. We sort of vaguely outlined this when we agreed to meet. But the challenge is, because we're doing a programme about how to make food that a person wants to eat, so it's nice and tasty, but also is healthy for them and critically is also healthy for the planet. We're trying to eat better in all respects. And it suddenly occurred to me that that is essentially what you were trying to do, your key aims when you set up Van der Lyle. You've absolutely nailed it. I mean, first and foremost, we want to cook tasty food, really tasty, delicious food, reasonably healthy. You know, I don't want people to roll out of here feeling overstuffed and full of heavy fats and proteins. So we focus on vegetables, but also food that's in season, food that's locally sourced where possible. I'm not too dogmatic about it, but locally sourced if and when it makes sense. So it's, yeah, that's it. 
How easy is it to meet those obligations in terms of getting the produce that ticks the boxes you want to tick? Is that easy to do and run a viable business? I thought this was going to be a real challenge, but we made it much easier for ourselves by only focusing on plants. So we were able to tick an awful lot of those boxes by cooking a vegetable-focused, vegetable-centric menu. And that's not to say we're a vegetarian restaurant, because that's not part of our philosophy. It just happens to be almost coincidental. We did cook a chicken here once. We did cook a chicken. It never made it onto the menu. <laughs> but having that as a, as a challenge and having those restrictions, I think, has made my cooking better and made it more interesting and made it more sustainable and made me think much more about process. If you think about the foundations of classical French cooking, and they're all meat-based and stock-based and fish-based... We had to throw all that out. We couldn't rely on those things. So we had to find ways to create those, those deep flavours, those textures, those satisfactory dishes and meals and menus without being able to use any animal protein. It must be a bit like science in many respects when a scientist has a, a hypothesis and then they start doing experiments. Do you do food experiments to try to come up with different ways of cooking stuff and different combinations in order to make exciting things that I would want to eat. Experimentation is really crucial to what we do. And as you say, we begin with a hypothesis. And for us, that is the concept of a dish. And sometimes it's instinctive and sometimes it's based on empiricism and sometimes it's based on just some loose idea of, of a dish that we think might work. And then we go through a process of cooking and refining and changing and altering. And often over the course of a two or three week period, a dish, even a dish on the menu can change in incremental ways depending on the produce that we have available to us and depending on the cooking techniques. I think a good example is probably a chilli that we have on at the moment, which is made from strawberries, which sounds completely crazy, but we'd had a strawberry ragu on the menu for quite a long time, and there was one morning when we came in and we said, what would happen if we added spices to that? And cooking a ragu is a very similar process to cooking a chilli, so, and it worked, and it's now on the menu, and we're doing a little dish of a, almost like a jacket potato with a strawberry chilli and some sour cream and some cheese. So it's very comforting and it's very familiar, but it's using ingredients and techniques in ways that are very unfamiliar. And also allows us to use potatoes and uh, strawberries, both of which are in season, both of which are sourced within 10 miles of the restaurant. So we're very, very happy to be able to, to showcase local produce in a really unexpected fashion. So have you got anything I could cook that you think I'm capable as a not terribly good cook at knocking out? I think that you should learn how to cook tempura vegetables. We're going to make a really super tasty, super simple tempura batter, which is something that people just don't do at home because they think it's challenging and they think it's something that they can only eat in a specialist restaurant. I'm not saying it's going to be in any way authentic, but it will be delicious. There's the fundamental lessons of making something delicious. Usually, is, is it seasoned properly? And that means, is it salted properly and does it have enough acidity because acidity is what keeps the palate alive and salt is what makes things taste delicious what do i do first we need to secure some seasonal vegetables aubergine broccoli anything that steams well although it's being deep fried the actual cooking process is done through a steam right i've written those down we'll get james onto that in a minute what do i do with them 
wash them, peel them, and then slice them into pieces that you think will cook within about two minutes or so when they're being fried. What, a centimetre, two centimetres? So depending on, depending on the vegetable, you've got carrots, then I'd probably go with half a centimetre, but nice, thin, long slices because you want, that, you want plenty of batter. So this is, ratio is important here because you want the crunch of the batter, but you also want the rigidity still in the vegetable, but it also has to be cooked. It's the batter that's scaring me. The vegetables don't worry me. I cook those all the time, but the batter frightens me because I've never done this. So take me through it gently. So essentially what you, what you want to achieve in a tempura batter is lots and lots of air bubbles. And uh, to achieve that, we rely on a very simple chemical reaction between a base and an acid. We use a self-raising flour, a gluten-free self-raising flour, which already has some raising agents in it. To that, we add a little bit extra bicarbonate of soda. We use a soda water to make the batter, a touch of salt for seasoning, and then just before you batter the vegetables, I always add a touch of vinegar, and I usually use white wine vinegar. And what the vinegar does is react with the bicarbonate of soda, creates lots and lots of delicious bubbles, which then activate in the fryer and give you a super light, super delicate batter on the veg. The, the first thing you see is the, as the batter reacts with the hot oil, it will, it will puff out and you'll get loads and loads of bubbles of carbon dioxide. Well, sitting here listening to all that is James Titko from our team. Have you got all that, James? Are you, you're going to walk, so that's very sustainable. And you're going you're to go and get this shopping list. So we basically need those vegetables. Are you up for it? Thanks, Chris. Challenge accepted on the condition that I can solicit some help from someone I know will be able to offer some very well-informed advice. My name's Alice. I'm the manager of the Cambridge Food Hub and our purpose is to connect local producers in Cambridgeshire and its surrounding counties with businesses in Cambridge and primarily that's retailers but also cafes and coffee shops. Thank you so much, Alice. Down to business, we've got a task. Alex has set us an achievable recipe for a home cook. It's a version of the tempura dish they make at Vandalisle. And the first ingredient on my shopping list is seasonal vegetables. And we're in the perfect place to acquire those at the Cambridge market in the middle of town. What should I be on the lookout for? So you've picked a great time of year to use seasonal veg. This is like peak UK growing season. You've got calabries, like broccoli. It's local sweet corn time of year as well, which is always exciting for people that grow that. (laughs) French beans, loads of like leafy green vegetables, spinach, lettuce, salad items. We're going to find this task okay. There's a lot of things growing at the moment. Every vegetable I can think of. So the mission is to make sure that as much of the food that ends up on the dinner plate is as good for the planet as possible. It's food miles, the primary metric. I'm sure there are other factors as well, but is that the main one? Food miles is important in the, like I said, we work with local farms, but I will say that in terms of judging the sustainability of a food product, particularly in terms of its embedded carbon, food miles are actually not so significant Air freighting food is very bad for the environment. But shipping food is pretty low carbon. Much more important is how food is produced. So, for example, if you get tomatoes that are grown in a heated greenhouse, so burnt fossil fuels to heat the greenhouse, even if they're grown locally, that's likely to be worse for the environment than if you've shipped tomatoes from somewhere where they are growing in season, if it's a longer season, for example, in Spain. 
but it's also about supporting the local food economy. It's about making sure that people feel connected to their food and also making sure that, you know, as a country, we are resilient in being able to produce food for ourselves. So, Alice, we've found a fruit and veg seller and he assures me that pretty much everything on the show here is locally produced and a whole lot of it's going to be seasonal as well, isn't it? We've got courgettes, broccoli, carrots. These are all the things you were mentioning. What looks good to you? Yeah, I think I'd go for the courgettes, mm. definitely. We've got courgettes coming out of our ears at the moment. There's so much of them being grown locally. Your broccoli as well, I think, could, could be very nice. And... Yeah, they've got a bunch of carrots here at the front. Thanks a lot, mate. Have a nice day. Does freshness play a big part in taste? Mm. Yeah, I think freshness is really important. The idea that, you know, we might pick up something from a farm on Monday and then somebody's eating it on Wednesday. So it's two days after it's been harvested versus if you've had to import something from another country, it's had to travel, it's likely to have had possibly you know two weeks from it being harvested to it being eaten but the impact that that has on taste really varies on what the food item is so for example asparagus really classic like seasonal product you've got about six weeks where english or uk asparagus is in season and people know that is the time to eat asparagus outside of that you get it from peru likely to have been air freighted because it's a fragile product if it has taken a long time to get to your plate, then the sugars in this asparagus turn to starch and the taste of the product has changed. But if you've got other vegetable items like peppers and aubergines, for example, classic kind of Mediterranean vegetables, actually the taste can develop over time. But for a lot of things, you know, people who have their own gardens or allotments and grow their own food know that if you pick something and it's at perfect ripeness and it's perfectly fresh, it does taste amazing. <laughs> But I do think when it comes to taste, what's really important is the variety of an item that you're eating. So one variety of strawberry versus another, it isn't actually so much about where it's grown. That's just another thing to bear in mind. Some varieties are better quality and they do taste better and they've been bred for certain characteristics. And you can think about that when you're growing your own food at home as well. It's a lot more nuanced than perhaps it first appears, isn't it? That was Alice Guillaume. She's from the Comage Food Hub and she was speaking with our own James Titko. And before them, it was me talking to Vandalar chef and former master chef finalist Alex Rushmer, who came up with the recipe. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and this week, You Are What You Eat. So how do we make the very best of food, from both the perspective of what it looks like and tastes like, to how healthy it is and how good it is for the planet? Now, ingredients acquired, instructions straight from the horse's mouth. It is time to see how I got on in the kitchen. Now, I've realised it's actually really hard to do cooking and chopping and hold a microphone. So I'm going to need some help here. So Amelia's kindly volunteered to help me. Shall we have a look in the bag and see what James has got for us? Yeah. So we've got one aubergine, one carrot and one courgette. And we've got some purple sprouting broccoli as well. So that's what we're going to do. I've got the recipe from Alex. So if I read you the things out, can you go and get the ingredients from around the place? The first thing we need is self-raising flour. 
Put some sulfur in for. Okay, and we need some bicarbonate of soda. I did find some of that earlier. There's some over there. It's dated 2014, so I hope that still works. I bought the soda water, which is over there. We need a little bit of salt, and we're going to need some white wine vinegar. Have we got any of that? We have got some white wine vinegar. Oh, we have actually. Okay, can you weigh out 100 grams of that self-raising flour first? Just a pinch of that bicarb and a bit of salt. You mix all that round. Now, Alex said, do it dry first. And then once we've got the dry coat on everything, once we've cut them up, obviously, then we make the mixture wet with the soda water and the vinegar. And that then makes it froth a little bit and makes the batter all light. I'll peel the carrot because I can probably manage that. Do you want to chop up the courgette and the aubergine and the broccoli? And I'll go and peel this carrot. Mind your fingers, we don't want any tempura finger. Not vegetarian. Do you have to peel it? No, you don't peel that. That's a courgette. Some people peel their courgette. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to put the, the batter mix in this bowl. So I reckon they're all nice and damp, so they should go in there and get coated, because he said put them in dry first, in the dry mix first, and then we make it wet. Courgette first. We're getting courgettes now that are basically discs covered in the flour and the bicarb mix. They have coated pretty well, actually, haven't they? I was expecting them to go a bit more lumpy, but it's gone okay. Okay, so we now have broccoli that looks like Christmas trees covered in snow. Okay, right, got the broccoli. I'll leave you to do the aubergine and the carrots. I'm going to go and sort out the oil. Pot over here. Get some oil. Let's light the gas. Okay, right, the oil is heating up. I will go and get the soda water and the vinegar. I've got a measuring jug somewhere. Hang on, let me find that. We need 100 mils of that soda water. Looks good. And you need to add that gently to your flour, dry mix, and make it into a wet mix. What does the soda water actually do? According to Alex, because it's full of carbon dioxide, that's what makes it fizzy, and it's a bit acidic, and we're going to add some vinegar that's also acidic in a second. This reacts with the raising agent in the self-raising flour and the bicarbonate of soda, and it releases even more CO2, and that makes the batter we've made much more fluffy and bubbly, crispy. It's kind of like pancake mix, sort of. Yeah. I need to add a dash of vinegar to that. Oh, it's fizzing. That's really fizzing now. Right, now what we need to do is put your bits of vegetable through that mixture and then drop them into the... Which should uh, we do should we, Yeah, what should we do first? Should we do one broccoli. of each first, just to see what they okay. look like? one bit of broccoli. Okay, broccoli's in the it's wet mix. It feels quite thick, but light at the same time, because of the... All right, drop it in, let's see what happens. He said two minutes, and it'll go a sort of brownie, crispy colour. Okay. It's, it's Okay, it's cooking beautifully, it's all bubbling up. Looks good. What we're we doing now? Carrot. One piece of carrot. Okay, carrots goes. going in. And a piece of courgette. 
courgette going in. We, we dropped it, we've got a saucepan with an inch or so of oil in it, frying and... Oh, oh, it's gone nice. Oh, that's yeah, looking that's good. Looking that good. is looking good. And you can see the where the batter was frothy, it is all kind of fluffy but crispy. It's amazing. And the carrot. Ooh, the oh, the that looks good. good. It's cooking fast. It is cooking fast, isn't it? i tell you what, I'm going to get somewhere to put these when they're done. Here's a plate. Okay. Can we do more broccoli? Because that looks so delicious. I'm, I'm dying to have that. Yeah. We've got... Um, the things we cook first now out on the plate. <laughs> I've already had hungry. dinner and I'm feeling hungry. <laughs> we need a dip with some sweet chilli. So let's get that. It's in here. Are, are you ready? I'm ready. Can we go at the same what time? Broccoli with some sweet chilli. Right. Uh. Oh, that's nice. That's really good. The batter, beautiful. It tastes just like prawns as well. Really good. I'm going to try a bit of that courgette. That, that looks good. Oh, that's delicious. Uh, that's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. It's absolutely mm, delicious. Of course, that's gorgeous. That is absolutely delicious. I've enjoyed making it. It didn't take us very long to make it. And and it's really, really tasty. Yep. Quick 15-minute meal. And we're sorted. Would you do it again? Absolutely. Well, I would call that a roaring success and thanks very much to Alex for his fantastic recipe and guidance thanks Alex Rushmer now listening to all of that and still with us from earlier is experimental psychologist and food and drink guru Charles Spence one thing we haven't touched on yet Charles we talked about the sorts of tastes and flavours that we we have evolved to find alluring and tempting and the ones we we try and avoid because they might poison us we talked about eating with our eyes and what food looks like we haven't considered who makes the food? Does that play a role? If you know that some hotshot has made your lunch, does that affect your perception of how good it tastes? Absolutely. I think we can think of, you know, the star chef as a kind of brand. And generally, if we uh, like the brand, things taste better as a result. I think we very often taste what we expect to taste as much as actually what we're, we have in our mouth. We sort of have a, make a prediction about what food's going to taste like. So if it comes from a star chef, we think it's going to be great. And then when we put the food in our mouth, we kind of check it to check if it's kind of like what we expected. And if it is, then we live in the world of our kind of flavour expectations as much as in the world of our experience itself. But of course, it's not just that the, the chefs who might boost our perception of the taste of the food. The fact that you were making the tempura yourselves probably also has a role to play. And there's research out there showing that if you give people kind of partly prepared meals to finish off in their own kitchen and then you give them a dish that you say well you you finish that dish off yourself you're part of the process of cooking versus somebody else your colleague made it then we all think that the food that we had a hand in making tastes better than that was made by somebody else even if it's identical food it's kind of like the ikea effect uh, in the kitchen <laughs> someone did say to me that even the weight of the cutlery and and the ching of the glasses in the wine glasses, it, it, that also affects our perception of how good or how high quality a food stuff is. Absolutely. So the first thing I do when I go to a restaurant is sort of pick up the cutlery and the knife and the fork and give it a little uh, balance it in my hand, see how heavy it is. We've done a number of studies now, both in the laboratory, but also in fancy five-star hotel restaurants where we take a large groups of people 
and on half the tables we put you know the heaviest cutlery we can find and the other half the tables we just put the light uh, canteen cutlery instead and serve people exactly the same food in exactly the same place on exactly the same day and ask them to rate how much they like the food how much they'd be willing to pay for it a dish like that on a place like they find themselves in time and again we find that the heavier the cutlery the better people rate the food and the more they're willing to pay for it. So one of the simplest ways, perhaps, to improve the taste uh, of your food. <laughs> was Alex's advice to cook tempura particularly sage in the sense that he made me eat something crunchy? Because I also read somewhere that, that we've evolved to like crunchy stuff because our brain says fresh if it's crunchy. Absolutely. I was, I was listening to the sound of the crunch and thinking it did sound very tasty. And indeed, uh, most of the things we like especially the snack foods, tend to be noisy. They're crispy, crunchy, crackly, even creamy and carbonated make a sound. Our brains seem to like that. And whether that's because it signals freshness in fresh produce or perhaps fat content in baked and fried goods, we're not quite sure yet. But certainly it's a very appealing sensation, even though it doesn't directly contribute any nutrients or anything we need to our diet. Nevertheless, we like that sonic reassurance, I suppose, that what we're eating is perhaps fresh. Oxford University's Charles Spence. Thanks very much. So that's definitely all food for thought, isn't it? And hopefully it's given everyone some encouragement to think outside the traditional nutritional box. And do give Alex's recipe a whirl. It was amazingly simple but absolutely delicious and we will put it on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast so you can have a go too. And my tip, courgettes work brilliantly. That's all we have time for this week, but before we go, I wanted to tell you about a new series we're launching at the end of August, which is called Titans of Science. We'll have in-depth interviews with some extremely famous people, including former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as well as very prominent in the COVID pandemic, that's Dr Anthony Fauci. We also talked to the UK's former chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davies, who described famously antibiotic resistance as a bigger threat than terrorism. Also, the infertility expert, Lord Robert Winston, and our first Briton in space, Helen Sharman. You can find out more on our website as well as on LinkedIn, the site formerly known as Twitter. And of course, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.